All right, good morning, everybody. We are probably not for everybody, but welcome to Livingstone's Church. I don't say that bragging like, it's just, here's the deal, we're about to continue a second week of a series of where we, we try to talk about real life issues and real life problems, and in that there's a little bit more candor than you might be used to in a church. But you need to know that my 86-year-old grandmother was here at 9.30, and she survived, so you will this morning as well, I think. So just much grace for you as you listen to me, and much grace on me as I try to speak out of Song of Songs, which if you were here last week, you remember we had quite a bit by way of review. If you missed it, I'm not going to cover it again, so you really should go to the podcast and listen. We've got an introduction to the book itself, kind of its background, a theology of sexuality, and even pastorally, why are we talking about this right now, right here at the Living Stones Church? And so if you missed that, you should go back to it. I do just a real quick review, just real summary. Uh, Song of Songs is a collection of love songs. They're just all of the, it's just total love songs, and they are sexually explicit in nature. So as we read it together, even this morning, you'll have this thought often, that's in the Bible? And the answer is yes, but we'll be okay with it. And also, Song of Songs, it's not any particular chronological order. There's no real plot. There's no overall narrative. There's no reference to God in the book, which is odd, yet it's still in our scriptures. It's difficult at times to know who's saying what, when, but we'll wade through that even this morning. You have just a few characters. You've got a woman, a Shulamite girl, we don't even know her name, and her lover, which could be King Solomon, possibly. She's got a friend, a choir of friends who will enter the picture, and that's mainly, those are the main characters. But in the end, when we're finished with the Song of Songs, the intent is for you to see that God created male and female, and in that he said it was good, and we should celebrate that reality, and at the same time try to figure out how it is that we're wired and how we think in such a way that sometimes moves that off kilter for us in terms of real joy in real life. So if it's okay with you, uh, last week I mentioned grooming might be an issue that you should talk to your spouse about, or your, right? Last week I had a big old beard, I don't know if you remember, it used to be so I wanted to take this seriously, too, in terms of asking my wife, you know, in terms of grooming habits. And so we were laying in bed one night, and I said, so, like, what about my grooming habits? Is there something you'd like me to change or do? And she kind of laughed and said, yeah, could you shave a K into your beard for her name? And so I thought it'd be cute to go ahead and do that. So yesterday morning, I woke up and attempted to, to shave a K into my beard, and I messed it all up as a weird, awkward-looking V, so I had to shave the whole thing. But fortunately, I shaved an excellent K in my back here, and I've been looking forward to showing you this morning what... I'm just kidding. Oh, no, don't leave yet. I'm just joking. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, we're, we're just going to get right into it, okay? So we're kind of having fun. We're about to dive right in. So come, come with me as we hit the Song of Songs. Let's pray, and then we'll begin in verse number 5. Father, we come to you and ask that you would give us help to understand who it is that we are and how you created us and how you knit us together and all the intricacies of our thoughts and our emotions and even how we relate to one another and have attractions and, and deal with things like marriage and maybe, maybe being single and, and still having feelings. Lord, we need you to help us. And so we ask that you'd empower us by your spirit to have great insight and wisdom and also understanding from the Song of Songs. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We ready? Here we go. Verse 5 of chapter 1 of Song of Songs. The woman is speaking, the Shulamite girl, and she says, Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Keter, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Which probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but what she's trying to say is she's really dark. But then she says, Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons, her brothers, right? were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. And so she says, my own vineyard I have 
neglected. Now, what's interesting, she begins in the Song of Songs here, verse 5, really talking about her insecurities. There's things about herself she doesn't like, and maybe some of you can relate to when you look in the mirror, there's things that you see that you don't like. In fact, I would say, especially women, I'm not saying it's not true of men as well, but especially women, there seems to be a proclivity that when you look in the mirror, there's certain insecurities that the only thing you see in the mirror is the one thing that you think to be a flaw in your life. So if you think, even if it's not true, but if in your mind your right nostril is larger than your left nostril, when you look in the mirror, the only thing you can see is your right nostril. And, and for this Shulamite girl, one of the things that she's recognizing is, is that she's dark. Now, just as a side note, she's Semitic in background, which means she's naturally dark. This is not an ethnicity thing. This isn't like black versus white. This is she recognizes her skin has been especially tanned or probably even burnt. And the reason is, is because she's out in the vineyards because her brothers are making her go work outside. The reason why people might look down on that is because back in Solomon's day, tanning was not particularly cool. The lighter complexion would be, no matter what your skin tone, just because when you were outside, that means that you were probably poorer and you were a laborer and you were not living in a palace. If you were dark or sunburned and had to spend time working in the sun, that means that you didn't have the luxury of wealth in your family where you could just chill out on your family's income and not have to really work with your hands for a living. And what we find out here is she's probably being raised by a single mother because the book never mentions her father. It will mention her mother. It will mention her brothers. It never mentions a a father. And her brothers send her out to do hard labor, to do the work of the vineyard. And in the sun then, she begins to get extra tan or sunburnt. And so just as if Jersey Shore were being filmed on the days of King Solomon, they would never go to the tanning beds because that wasn't cool back in the day. And so that's what she's saying. She has these insecurities that are coming over her in regards to her appearance. So in that, I would say we also struggle with, and especially women, that you could have a woman who really, she's over the top fit. She has a 10% body fat, but when she looks in the mirror, all she sees is that 10%. Or a woman who could be stunning to her husband or to her boyfriend, but all she can think is, oh, I bet he wants to throw up when he sees this cellulite. And it doesn't help in the culture and society that we live in. Because we live in a day and age where sex and youth and beauty and those images flood our minds because they're constantly everywhere in commercials and movies and in magazines, on covers, trying to tell us what the ideal is. And so those images of women who don't even really look as they appear, you do know that even the women who are on those covers of magazines, it's been photoshopped, right? You do know, I mean, even they don't live that out. They, it's been photoshopped in some way or airbrushed if you're a little bit older. But there they are, and the problem is, and the consequence is, it causes us to have insecurities about how we look. Did you know, according to statistics, two out of five women and one out of five men would trade three to five years of their life to achieve their weight goals? They would give up years of their life to, to weigh their ideal weight. In 1970... The average age of a girl who started dieting was 14. By 1990, the average dieting age fell to, you want to guess? Eight. Eight years old. See what's happening. Those images are entering into our consciousness, and now eight-year-old little girls are looking at themselves in the mirror, and they're unsatisfied, and they think they have to attain something else. A study found that women overestimate the size of their hips by 16% and their waist by 25%, yet the same women were able to correctly estimate the size of a box. After viewing images of female fashion models, 7 out of 10 women felt more depressed and angry than prior to viewing those images. 
if you take a look at Barbie and Miss Americas and all those sorts of things, it appears that the ideal woman is 5 foot 5 inches, she weighs 100 pounds, and she wears a size 5. Young girls are more afraid of becoming fat than they are of cancer or losing their parents. 35% of occasional dieters progress into pathological dieting. The diet industry itself makes $40 billion a year. 30% of women choose an ideal body shape that is 20% underweight, and an additional 44% choose an ideal body shape that is 10% see, underweight. It's just crazy how we think because of what our society is doing to us. And you see some of that reflected in the Song of Songs. This woman feels a little bit insecure. And I think it's okay for us to say, we've got to talk about this out loud and redo this because there are serious consequences to this drive to look a certain way that is unrealistic. You know, eating disorders are at an epidemic proportion to the society that we live in. The statistics there are is estimated that 8 million Americans have an eating disorder, 7 million of them women and 1 million men. 1 in 200 American women suffer from anorexia. 2 to 3 in 100 American women suffer from bulimia. What that means is here at the Living Stones Church, statistically, by the time we have all three services, I will have, I will have talked to at least 21 women in this place who are suffering with bulimia or anorexia. Anorexia is the third most common chronic illness among adolescents. 95% of those who have eating disorders are between the ages of 12 and 25. And so these are the things that we have to step back and go, really? I mean, do we have to settle for this? And don't even get me started in terms of plastic surgeries, which, by the way, in 2010, there were 13.1 million plastic surgery procedures, up 5% from 2009. The most five common. You know what the number one plastic surgery is? Anyone want to guess? Everyone says liposuction. You know what it really is? Breast augmentation. Number one is breast augmentation. Number two is nose reshaping. Three is eyelid surgery. And number four is liposuction. And the number five is tummy tucks. And what happens is those insecurities carry themselves into marriage. And those insecurities carry themselves into relationships, and then problems develop. And so now you find in your insecurities, you only want to be naked in front of your spouse when the lights are totally off. Or instead of letting your husband enjoy the beauty of your body, you begin to cover up. And I'm telling you, nothing halts lovemaking faster than shifting your focus from your spouse's intimate advances to your own insecurities. And women, you see things that I'm telling you your husbands would never see. They just don't. Not that they're not perceptive, not that they don't love you, but they just don't see it. But when you keep talking about it, then all of a sudden they see it. It's just best. How do we deal with these insecurities? And so in this, what we want to know is the Bible tells us that our bodies are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, your body belongs to God. It is a temple of God, and because of that, we should take care of our bodies. But you know there's some things that are out of your control and there are a lot of things that are out of my control. It doesn't matter how much I want or pray or desire, I will never be six foot four inches. It's just not going to happen, right? Those things are out of my control. But there are things that are in our control, and I would say because our bodies ought to be temples of God, it should mean that we do things like try to eat right, try to exercise, get enough rest, have healthy lifestyles, etc. And that we should do this for two reasons. One, you should do it for yourself. Just for your own sake, for your own life. It's sort of like, you know, the announcements on the airplanes when the little bag of oxygen drops and they tell you to do what first? Put it on yourself and then assist your children or other family members. The same thing is true in this category. Anyone watch Biggest Loser? Anyone watch The Biggest Loser? 
love The Biggest Loser. But the common story over and over and over again when they begin reflecting on their life and how they got to this situation is almost always this story. Well, I put everybody else's needs and everybody else's concerns above my own, and you took care of everybody else and your family and your et cetera, et cetera, and you neglected yourself. And so I would say, yeah, don't do that. The best and the healthiest thing for your marriage and for your relationships and for your children and for your home is for us to do this for ourselves. But I would say secondarily, number two, it's okay to do this for your spouse. This is what we talked about last week. We want our spouses to be attracted to us, right? I don't, want, I don't want Kelly to look at me and sigh in exasperation. This is it. I mean, this is what I got. I mean, no, so I want to do the best that I can for her to be attractive. And women, your husbands want that from you. You don't have to be a supermodel. They don't want that. They just want to know that you care about looking good for them because guys are inherently very visual. Now, that might bother you as ladies, but that's not their fault. That's how God wired them. So if you're angry, you can blame God. But that's just the way, that's the way it works. But husbands, here's your chance to help her and also to help you. When your wife is insecure about her appearance and it begins to hinder intimacy between you, now is the time to rise up like William Wallace and Braveheart and fight for her freedom. That you need a resolve to defend your wife against those things that are going on in her mind that are not true. Like you need a resolve to affirm her beauty and to do so in a way that is true, honest, and sincere because your wives know how to sniff out flattery that is not true in a moment, right? So they've got their little detectors on, and they know when you're not being honest. So be very honest. And here's a tip from your friend and pastor, Sam. Do not use the words good or nice. <laughs> I know you mean it. When you, well, how do I look? You look nice. I know you mean that. She really looks nice. But what she hears is, you've looked better. So let's come up with much better words and better phrases so that we can do this, right, do this well. So speak word, we will resolve to speak words that will soothe her insecurities and then release the passions that are within her. And we want to combat the norm, not only in our spouses, but fathers, let me tell you something. Begin to speak into the hearts of your daughters right now. Tell them how beautiful they are. Tell them how gorgeous they are. Let them know how beautiful they are. I mean, let them know that God created them exactly as they are, and they are perfect because you want to cut off from any possibilities of being overwhelmed. by the, Don't let them look at magazines all the time and investing in those sorts of things. Cut off the possibilities where they... And then, let, listen to me, single ladies, let me, let me talk to all the single ladies now. Welcome to Living Stones. I need you to choose a man who speaks beauty into your life. If you are dating any dude who criticizes your appearance, makes little cracks at your weight, even at the end of the sentence he says, I'm just kidding, note those things. If he begins to compare you to other women, if you feel ugly when you're with him, you need to drop him like the dead weight that he is to you. Because it will only continue as you go on in marriage and it will be no good for you. Because we want to take for our example how the lover responds to the Shulamite girl in the midst of her insecurities. Let me go, let's go on with what she says here in verse 7. Here she goes. Moving on verse 7. This is the woman still speaking. She says, tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. You see, you see what she's asking? See, this is what she wants a tryst. She wants to get together with her lover. She wants to have a sexual encounter. It's here in the Word, people, I'm telling you. And so in that, what she wants is a little afternoon delight. So when the flocks are chilling in the afternoon, 
she wants to have a romantic interlude, and this is what she's asking for. And so would you tell me where it is that you're at? And she throws in a little threat here at the end of verse 7. I like how she says this. I mean, if you don't tell me where you're at, then I'll be forced almost like a veiled woman to go to all the tents of your friends to try to find you out. And what she's basically saying is, you don't want me snooping around the tents of your male friends to find you, do you? So he responds in verse 8. If you don't know where I'm at, and he says, most beautiful of women. See what he's saying here? It's that affirmation in the midst of her insecurities. His first words back to her, you are, most, you are the most beautiful of women. Follow the tracks of the sheep. So just follow where we've been grazing. Follow the tracks of the sheep, and you should be able to find us. And then he has a little bit of advice. If we really want to keep this discreet where no one else really knows what it is that we're up to, then you should even bring some of your own goats, the flock of goats, as if you're coming out to bring to pasture as well. And therefore, the man's response is, here we go, bring it on. And so what is the point of this according to the word of God? The point is this. Married people, every once in a while, take a good lunch break. Breaks the routine, different setting, different context. Kids are in school, whatever. I don't, just something out of the norm. I just, it's all scriptures, God breathe. Amen? All right, we're moving on. Just hang with me. I hope we can still look eye to eye still, but uh, it's going to get worse. Verse 9. Verse 9, here's where he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, I know, ladies, your heart isn't pitter-pattering at that, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, once again, watch what he does. He begins by affirming her beauty, especially in light of her insecurities, and he, do, and he also gives her a nickname. And I'm a big fan of you should have a nickname for your, for your spouse. A really good, and it doesn't have to be a big deal, but just a really good, endearing nickname. Not, not like the old ball and chain, not like the old lady, the old hag. I mean, just a sweet one between the two of you, and then use it so much that it annoys your friends when you're out together. Like, oh, please, shut up. But he says this, you're like a mare. Now, gentlemen, I'm going to suggest you not compare your lady to a horse, <laughs> just because it's not near as meaningful today as it was back then. But this, just, this isn't just some any mare. This is one which is actually attached to Pharaoh's chariot. Now, you've got to be a pretty big deal, I'm talking in terms of a mare, to be attached to the chariot of Pharaoh. But the strange thing about this is, do you know what kind of horses were usually attached to the chariot of Pharaoh? Stallions. He didn't normally attach mares to his chariots. And so he seems to be making a point here because a, a common military, stra- military strategy in the days of Solomon, the, in, in these days, what would happen is, you know, when you've got all the chariots out there with their stallions, the, uh, the opposing army would often send out a mare who was in heat because when the stallions saw the mare in heat, it would throw them into such confusion that they couldn't charge as they were supposed to charge. And so what he might simply be saying to her is, you are so hot, it just drives me to distraction. That might be what he's saying here. And then he comments on her jewelry and how beautiful it is to him. He notes what she's wearing around her neck and her earrings. And so I think jewelry's all right. And I think you should purchase good jewelry from maybe Elemental by Sarah Wilkin. This sermon brought to you by... No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, here we go. Ready? Verse 12. We're, going, we're continuing on. Verse 12. Then this is what she begins to say. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Which, by the way, is a historical note. 
this would be a, a custom back in the day where they would put Myrna in a little pouch and she would sleep with it between her breasts all night long and then in the next day when she took it off, there would still be a lingering fragrance and scent there. And so that would be kind of, that's what she's referring to. She says, he, that's like my lover, there between my breasts. And my lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. So she begins by describing the joy and pleasure and refreshments her lover is to her. And I think this is instructive again, as we talked about last week. It's the woman who's doing this, right? Not very stereotypical Christian stereotypes here, but it is the woman who's describing refreshment, pleasure, and enjoyment. So if you ever thought like God's intent was you get married and he's all opposed to pleasure. and get, No, no, that's not true at all. Song of Solomon is all for this. And here you see that she's using very exotic descriptions. To you. She mentions nard, which doesn't sound very sexy but it was a very expensive perfume, and myrrh, and clusters of henna blossoms, and vineyards. This is all exotic imagery. And then she comes to a key word here, Engedi. See, Engedi is a very, David and his soldiers camped out at Engedi. Engedi, if you've ever been to Israel, all around Engedi is just desert land. So go back, yeah, this picture right here, uh, it's just, it looks like this desert everywhere. Just, there's nothing really there. It's kind of barren. And then out of nowhere, there's a little place called Engedi that looks like this. And you've got waterfalls, and you've got greenery, and you've got trees, and you've got plants. And it's an oasis in the middle of the desert. And so you would be traveling, and you'd have nothing. And out of nowhere was in Getty. What she says about her lover is, you are to me in Getty. Out of nowhere, she finds in her relationship and in their sex life together a place of real refreshing and real protection, which is what God designed for it, what she calls in Getty. And in our relationships, we need there to be within it in Getty. Because men, I know you're at work and you have all sorts of pressures and stresses and deadlines and people are needing this and wanting that and those sorts of things and you come home and what you want to find is refreshment, what you want to find is joy and no one wants to come into a house and the very first thing you encounter is your wife who's angry because the kids did this and she's frustrated with that and listen wives, I'm not saying you can't communicate those things because ultimately it will be healthy for you too. But give him just a moment to come home and see if he can't enjoy just a moment of silence and solitude or just in Getty and those sorts of things. And the same thing is true of women. I mean, they've got kids tugging on them all day. Mommy, I want this. Mommy, I want that. They're touching her all the time. And then she's trying to juggle a list that she could never really complete. She's trying to manage a job outside the house at the same time, get groceries and make meals. And then you husbands can't come home and explain, explode because there's dirty dishes in the sink because she needs for you to be her in Getty as well, Right? So that we are to one another what we need. But the way that God sort of designed it, and even designed us, especially for men, there is pleasure and release in the arena of relationships and sexualities. It is a place to receive great rest. And that's why sometimes after sex your husband is asleep in 24 seconds, because there is rest. And so we want to consider our attitude of wanting to provide in Getty as a refuge and as a place of rest and renewal. Another area outside of even our attitude, I would say, is environment as well. So for most couples, Engedi is lived out in the bedroom. My question for you is, is your bedroom a place of beauty and rest? <laughs> or is it a dumping ground for dirty clothes and a stack of unfolded laundry? Is it a hangout place for your kids and pets? Or is it a place of sensuality? Is it full of dirt and dust? And I mean... You get what I'm saying, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be everything's going to be gold-plated and you've got very white plane at all hours that's coming out of the bedroom. I mean, I'm not saying that. It's just simply to ask the question, is it a place of Engedi? Is it, a, is it an environment that truly does promote what is it God always intended from the very beginning? Because, ladies, if you've got pictures of your mother all over the bedroom, I know you love her, but he might not find that very hot. 
or pictures of kids everywhere. And now, those of you who are single, hang with me because I know you're thinking, all right, does this, I mean, 93% of you who are single now will get married. So statistically, hang with me, pay attention because you're going to need all of this, even if at the moment you might be thinking to yourself, all right, is this for me? There, no, this is for you too, 93% of you. So hang with me. But it might be time now to redecorate. Paint, pillows, candles, put in some CD players or whatever you need for some soft music. Make sure there's a lock on your door. If you need to buy new sheets, buy new sheets. Get those satin ones. They're like, whoosh, I mean, you just slide right across it. <laughs> Fragrances are important. Did you know, listen to this. I found this out this week. The top odor for putting men in the mood for love was a combination of pumpkin pie, which when I found that out, I thought, that explains Thanksgiving. Why do I'm always in the mood in Thanksgiving time? <laughs> See, ladies, right there, you make a pumpkin pie, your husband come and go, I know what this means, right on! <laughs> it was a combination of pumpkin pie and lavender, followed by black licorice and freshly, men, baked donuts. I knew it! Krispy Kremes have always been... Oh. Now, in my house, I would also add, and cheese fries. Cheese fries is also an aphrodisiac. Can we move on? We good? We're moving on. Verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. See, the, the man is speaking back to his woman, and he's letting her know. He's affirming once again how beautiful she is. And so she reciprocates in kind. Verse 16, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. Have you ever used the word verdant? <laughs> I mean, that's hot. <laughs> it's verdant. It just means green. It means flourishing. She's just saying, our bed is flourishing. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. Husbands, what this means is you will need to provide for your wife a house that she feels like she could be in the mood in. I mean, when you first get married, you, could, you, you get away with a lot because you're still drunk on love like that. But after a while, if it's just cramped, so you need to provide. And so that's what this is about. And then she, in verse 1 of chapter 2, comes in with a very playful teasing and also a hint of her own insecurities coming back out again. Here it is, chapter 2, verse 1. This is what she says. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Now you read that, you think, oh, she's complimenting herself, right? She's comparing herself to a flower, it smells good, it's pretty. But really, it's not a compliment at all because roses of Sharon were everywhere. They're one of the most common flowers that you can find. It'd be like dandelions all over your... Like if your wife would have said, you're like a dandelion, baby. I mean, that's not going to mean much to you. So she's comparing herself to a very common... Same thing with lilies of the valley. They were everywhere. They were very common. And he knows this because listen to how he responds to her then in verse 2. How does he respond? Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. So what he's saying is, okay, we'll go with this. You want to call yourself a lily and by that think that you're common? Let me, let me one-up this here. If you're like a lily, then you're a lily who's among the thorns, among all the other maidens. What he's saying is, there's no one that is like you. There's no one that is more beautiful than you. You're a lily, but everyone around you, they're just thorns, right? They're just dry and they, ugh. you're the lily. He affirms her beauty. And then number two, this is very important. She becomes his standard of beauty. I'll come to this more in just a moment because she does the same thing. Watch her respond in verse 3. Same thing in kind. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. You see what she says? Like all the guys out there, they're like a common forest tree, right? They're, like, they're all pines. And then out of nowhere, there's one that's an apple tree. And also, by the way, in ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, apple trees had very uh, sexual, sensual connotations to it. And so she's bringing all this into the conversation, bringing all this into the discussion. What she's saying about her man is, He's like every other dude. They're just like, there's another tree. Look at the bark. But here, my man, he's an apple tree. He stands out. And what she says is, you are my standard of beauty. And this is what I think is important for us. 
your spouse needs to be your standard of beauty. And you should ask God for this. I mean, if you don't really feel it, don't say you don't feel it. Just talk to God about it. Husbands, you should pray and ask God that in your heart and in your mind and in your eyes, your wife will always be your standard of beauty. And wives should do the same thing about their husbands. I want my husband, how he looks and who he is, to be my standard of beauty. And what that means is, if your wife is blonde, that means you're into blondes. And if your wife has brown eyes, that means you're into brown eyes. If your wife is five foot three inches, that then is for you the ideal size. And everything, if your wife is skinny, that means you are into skinny girls. If your wife is more full-figured, that is your favorite thing. And your standard of beauty continues with your wife when she's 20 and when she's 40. See, my standard of beauty when I'm with Kelly at age 60 isn't, oh, the standard of beauty when she was 20. It's what Kelly will look like at age 60. That will be my standard of beauty. We'll evolve together and grow together. And wives, listen to me. If your husband is 5 foot 9 inches on a good day, has receding brown hair, blue eyes, he's kind of stocky, he preaches for a living, then for you, that is hot. Where is my wife? (laughs) See, when your spouse becomes your standard of beauty, you'll not compare any longer. You won't turn to other images, whether it be on the Internet or elsewhere, that attempts to redefine your beauty. And again, I would say to the single ladies here, this is important in terms of make sure that you find somebody that you know will allow you to be their standard of beauty. And pay attention to signs of comparison that are undermining and unhealthy in your relationship. There's, I heard a story about a couple who got married and they were telling about their wedding night. And the big deal was he was blind, had been blind all of his life. He'd have no other relationships, no real girlfriends. But sometime in his life, God gave him a woman who loved him and he loved her. And she was nervous because she recognized it was a big deal to be there that night, the wedding night. Because for him, now you know how blind people see, right? Like you know how they kind of, you ever see blind people, how they kind of feel around the face and what they look like? She recognized her husband had never literally seen a woman. And that night, on their wedding night, he would literally for the very first time see his wife in all of her glory. And it would be for him the only standard he has. He he knows nothing else. And this would be forever his only standard of what a woman should look like and feel like. And and, and my wife thought, yeah, there's something about that that's beautiful. How do we in some way recapture that heart and that idea where our spouses become for us our standard of beauty for life? Verse, the end of verse 3, she gets a little exotic here. She says, I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now, her language is increasing in regards to sexual reference here, and I think it's brilliant that the Song of Songs is able to speak using metaphors of nature and with them attached an explosion of sexual meaning and innuendo. And so just as you meditate and want to guess on what the interpretation is at the end of that verse, what you're thinking is probably correct, and most scholars would agree that's probably what she's thinking about. But regardless, what you see is... The, the creative use of language and metaphor and how the Song of Songs allows us, allows us to read it and at the same time receive all sorts of good things because this is the Bible and all Scripture is inspired and useful. Amen? We move on to verse 4. She says, He has taken me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Now, we're not used to talking about banners, but they were very common in the ancient world, especially in military, right? And when armies went out to war, they would have banners. People would hold banners, and that's where the unit walked out together, and there was banners. And the banner was very important because in the midst of battle, confusion can be very easily overcome you. 
Like if you start to, you're starting to get whooped on by the enemy and you're starting to be afraid or you need protection or you need to go to a, a safe place. What the banner served on the battlefield was that place. You looked for your banner and you tried to get back to your banner because that was usually the source of strength. That was usually the source of protection. That's where everyone else in your unit was. And so what she says is, my husband is a banner over me. He is my protection and it is one of love. And so in that husband's, we need to be protections for our wives. And it should be a protection of love to protect them from depression, to protect them from responsibilities that are overwhelming them and stealing joy in their life. Listen, husbands, you know this. When your wife, is, her joy is being sucked out of her life because she's got over, so overwhelmed with this and that, having to take care of that, then that night you bathe the kids and you put them to bed that you vacuum the floors, that you wash the dishes. These are ways that we have our banner of love over our spouses so we can protect them and make sure that things don't steal from them the life that God intends for them to have. And not only that, but we protect them physically from anything that could hurt them. And so we just think through, where's my wife going? What time of day is it? Is it going to be dark out? Is it in a black back alley? Is it in a parking lot? That has? I mean, we begin to think about those things and ensure that we are always thinking about how it is that we protect our spouses Verse 5, she goes on, Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Now, she gets a little bit more explicit here and even uses some language of, it's a a sexual euphemism here. She says, His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. What she's asking for here is to be satisfied sexually. She's asking for her husband to touch her. Now, she's using language that, I mean, everyone would read it and go, Oh, I mean, and then your kids could read it and they wouldn't have any idea. But they have a language to express their love and sexual desires. And I think this is so important and so healthy in relationships. Now, listen, you and your spouse ought to have a sexual language that, the two of you, that just the two of you know and understand. And it's okay to talk it through, to try to talk through what is our language, what are the things that we want to say. Because there's nothing, I mean, what I've discovered is couples can be so awkward and so unsexy when it comes to things of sex. And in the awkwardness and embarrassment, they don't know how to use words to initiate or how to be sexual and so wives are frustrated because their husband's sitting on the couch watching TV and he leans over and says, so are we going to do it? I mean, that's just not sexy to them, right? And so we could take a lesson from the Song of Songs to try to figure out how do we speak in ways that our spouses understand and it makes sense. The woman in the Song of Songs, she has no embarrassment or problem telling her man what it is that she wants and how she wants it. Sex isn't just about bodies, it's also about words because it is in our words and communication that deepens emotional oneness. And honestly, ladies, us guys need some direction. We do. We can't read minds. And you all are complicated. <laughs> guys are pretty straightforward. We're pretty consistent. If we liked it last week, we'll probably like it this week. But you ladies are more complicated than that. I don't know, it's planets... Gravitational, I don't know what it is, and so it's okay simply just to say instruction and to be clear and to be honest. But what's not hot is for you to be doing the same thing 15 years, and then one day in your exasperation, you finally say to your husband, Actually, I don't like that, and I've never liked that, because then he feels stupid and embarrassed. And guys are pretty goal oriented, even to a fault, but one of their goals is your pleasure, and it will help if you just tell us. So develop a sexual language between you and even start, it's like learning a foreign language. It might take some, are we okay? We don't talk about this at church very much, do we? But these are real life issues, I'm telling you. We're going to be okay. Start with the basics. It's like learning a foreign language. Start with the basics. And how would you describe sexual parts of the body? That's just an issue for most couples. I mean, because thingy isn't very hot. (laughs) What words or phrases will you use that will effectively communicate that you want to make love? 
And if you can't think of anything, start using Engedi. Just say, hey, you want to go to Engedi tonight? And then they'll know exactly what you're talking about. One couple I heard of, they use candles just as a symbol. Like when one of the two of the, in the marriage wants to, to have sex, then they'll light one candle and they'll wait to see if the other candle is lit. And when they go back later to see the second candle lit, then they know it's on, right? See, for me, if Kelly lit one candle, I'm putting 20 outlets. Like, here we go. <laughs> you know, it's a bad night if you light the candle, your wife comes in, blows it out, and puts a fire extinguisher right there. <laughs> Hey, Mom and Dad. <laughs> Verse 7. This is odd because now she turns and talks to her friends. Like, right in the middle of this, oh, by the way, friends, I've got something to say to you. And she says in verse 7, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, she's making a very important point here. What she is experiencing, what she is feeling is overwhelming to her, but it's appropriate in particular contexts, in particular settings, in particular relationships. And so she's warning people, do not arouse this or awaken this until it is right. It's a note of caution. Her desires are a powerful thing, and she's overwhelmed in them, and and they belong in her particular context with her husband and lover. But she says to her friends, don't rush into this. Don't stir this up in your life until it really is time. You might want this in your life, and that's okay because that's how God knit us together, but make sure it's right. Don't settle for a plain forest tree when you can have an apple tree. Don't settle for a dude who doesn't know how to speak to you with words of love and protection and affirmation. So it's a word of caution. And now let's move on to verse 8. We'll we'll wrap up with verse 8 to 15 here. She goes on and says, listen, my lover. I mean, she hears him coming. Look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, Bounding over the hills, my lover, he is like a gazelle or a young stag. There he stands behind her wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Now, he's not a peeping Tom. That's not what this is about. He just wants to be with her. And so he's been away, and he's come back home. And he hasn't even entered into her chambers. From the outside, he begins to look into, is she there? Is she, is she ready? Does she, does she want me? My lover spoke, and this is what he said. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter has passed, which means springtime is coming. Give me, somebody give me an amen for that. Springtime is coming. And springtime is a time for love. And he knows that it's warmer out. You don't need as much clothing. It's going to be a lot more comfortable. So he beckons her to come out. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove, in the cleft of the rocks, in the hiding places on the mountains, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And then she responds here in verse 15. This is interesting. This is what she says. She says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Now, after this huge invitation for her to come with him, she responds with, we have foxes in our relationship, little ones that are seeking to ruin our relationship, the intimacy between us. That's all the language here, little foxes, their annoyances, because in terms of vineyards, they would chew and burrow and dig on the root system and cut off nutrients, and it would kill the vines. They were annoyances. Nobody liked the foxes. And what she's saying is there's something in our relationship, there's something in our intimacy together where there's little foxes. Catch those so that it will protect our relationship, so it will protect our intimacy together. Because when you get married, so the question for us is, what are those little foxes that are in our relationships that are sabotaging and undermining it? 
Because when you first get married, you can't imagine this to be a reality. You're so head over heels in love and lovesick and, oh, they're wonderful. You can't imagine a time when your spouse could annoy you. But I want to tell you, oh, it's coming. (laughs) In fact, it might come on so strongly that I know couples who just seven years later are now sitting in a marriage counselor's office and they don't even remember those feelings. Because the little foxes that were allowed to run rampant in their marriage and in their relationship, they began to chew away life and joy and pleasure, and there was nothing left but death and decay. And so she says, where are the little foxes? And this is, I think this is interesting because women seem to have this innate sense of knowing when something's wrong in the relationship. Guys, more often than not, don't have a clue, Right? And so this is the story I hear all the time, even here at the Living Stones Church. A wife will go to her husband and say, we've got, we've got problems. We, we need to go get some help. We have some problems we need to work on. She's not saying it's over. She's not saying I want a divorce. She's just saying there's some little foxes in our relationship that we need to take care of. And the husband almost always responds with something like, you're just being emotional right now. I mean, probably because it's that time. And if you'll just give this a few days, I'm sure this will pass over and you'll feel much better. And then five days later, they get in the same argument over the exact same thing. It's the exact same blow-up. And she says to her husband, we really need to get some help. We really have to go see a counselor to help us out on this issue. And he responds with, you're just overreacting. We don't need help. We just need more. And then you can fill in the blank with whatever it is. And I want to say, if your marriage is in trouble, go See a counselor. It will be the best money you ever... Because here's... Guys typically don't like to go... I mean, it's usually the guy. Usually. That's, oh, we don't need... I don't want to see a counselor. And then all sorts of excuses come up, right? Well, I don't want... We don't want the money. I don't want to spend the money. Hey, listen to me. Yeah? It will be an investment of money. But you, you want to talk about money. Wait until after the divorce and you've got child support payments and tell me if it would not have been worth it to invest in your marriage. Or what about time issues? And, you know, I don't know about time. Listen... You want to talk about time issues, wait until you've got all sorts of visitation rights that you've got to work out on your calendar. It'll be easier now for you to deal with this now. And in that, if you need a recommendation, I've got some for you. You just send me an email and I'll let you know. But I would say if you, we, we don't do this in any other area of our life. If our car breaks down, we take it to a mechanic. If something's wrong with our bodies, we go see a doctor. If something in our home needs repair, we'll call in the repair person. But when it comes to marriages, we start going, oh, well, I can fix it on my own. From what? Your expertise? I mean, it's not working. There's little foxes. And I'll never forget, 2003, Kelly and I weren't getting along. We are going through a rough patch, having issues that we could not talk through. And I pride myself in being able to talk through anything. Like, we just will communicate this to death, but in the end, we couldn't get over it. So I'll never forget, one night, we were fighting over the same thing, and we finally just in exasperation, we just need to go see somebody. And we did. And so we went to a counselor, and I went into it thinking, we'll probably come once or twice, and he'll straighten her out, and we'll be all good. But <laughs> didn't quite work out. didn't quite work out like that. But in the end, I look back and think it is some of the best money I have ever invested in anything in my entire life. And so I am a huge advocate for if you need it, don't be embarrassed by that. Everybody goes through seasons where they, everybody goes through seasons where they need some help. And so if you need it, you should get it. Let me give you some little foxes. We'll wrap this up here. Little foxes that could be in your marriage. Overwork, kids, finances, conflict with relatives, health problems, communication issues, unemployment, apathy, anger and resentment, shame, grief, depression, disagreement on beliefs, what you think about God and church, what your spouse thinks, disagreements on how to discipline the kids. Well, I don't believe in that well. This is how I was raised. Sexual incompatibility issues, issues with extended friendships. Those can all be little foxes that need to be worked out in relationships. Let me give you two of the most common. One is work. And the second is kids. One is work. The second is children. In terms of work, you need time off. 
all the statistics tell us that Americans work more than anyone else in the world, and we work more now than we did a decade ago. Like the rest of the world, they're having like six weeks of holiday, and they're going, I mean, America's like working all the time. And to make it worse, when you do get time off, what are you doing? You're on your Blackberry, you're on your cell phone, you're on your laptop, you're so plugged into work and always attached so that what's happening is you can never be in Getty and experience in Getty in your relationship. And so in that, we need to find a way. And the same for, I mean, I don't care if you're a stay-at-home mom. I know that your work schedule is even crazier than probably your husband is working 75 hours a week. And in that, you need to find space where you're able to drop all of that and go to En Getty. And number two, children. I love my kids. Listen to me. I've got three kids, and I love them all. I would die for each of them in a moment. Without hesitation, I would give my life for my three kids. But they do not help my marriage or sex life at all. <laughs> Did I stress that enough? I love them. But over the last 50 years, our society has shifted from a marriage-oriented society to a kid-oriented society. And now we structure all activities and decisions around the children, and it threatens marital oneness. So our marriages revolve around our kids and their activities and what they're into and, and all those sorts of things. And so in the end, we have, we have no time for one another. And it's because, and let me tell you, someday those kids are going to grow up and they're going to leave the house. You know what's going to happen to your marriage? It's going to fall apart. You know why? Because you allowed it to be the bond that kept you together, and God never intended your children to be the bond that kept you together. It was the oneness of your relationship that was intended to be together forever. And so my advice to you is dethrone the children. Dethrone, it's good for them. Dethrone, love them, care for them, spend time with them, but dethrone them. Don't let them sign up for every activity under the sun or allow them to dictate what happens every summer, every weekend, all year round. Make sure you carve out space to put your marriage first. Average couples, listen, statistically, they spend only four minutes of meaningful conversation a day. Four minutes. And then we wonder why our marriages are the way they are. So here's my advice. At least once a week, you should sit down with your spouse, get your calendars out, and sync your life up. Talk about, this is what I've got on this night, and we're going to be here on this day, and Saturday I've got this appointment, and just make that a life habit. And as you're doing that, make sure you put on that weekly calendar your date night. Not, with no Blackberry, no cell phone, no laptop, no kids, just you and your spouse on a date night. And make sure you, you know that on that calendar is pre-scheduled times of intimacy and sex. And I know that's not near as hot as spontaneity. But I'm telling you, if you've got three kids, you could kiss spontaneity away. If you're waiting for that, you're never going to have it. So put it on there and ensure that you have quality marriage minutes invested in your life together so that you could go the long haul and so that you could have the kind of relationship that reflects what God intended in his kingdom. Because what's what we want? We want for everyone around us, when they see our relationships, whether you're married or not married, when they see our marriages, when they see how we live our life, that they'll say, that's what we want. That's what we want. It's a reflection of his reign and rule and his kingdom. Amen? We still good? We're all right? Look each other in the eyes all right? Let's stand together. What's going to happen is we're going to pass out some trays to take up connection cards and our tithes and offerings. So when that tray comes by, just drop that in there. And after that, uh, we'll have a closing blessing. So... uh, let me, let me pray for our tithes and offerings. Father, we come to you and we lift up to you our tithes and offerings and ask that you'd use it for your glory, that you'd use it to expand your kingdom. you do great things for it and glorify your name and the one who sits next to you, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me also give you an invitation after Doug's final blessing we'll have here. Everyone else will kind of walk on out. But if you came in with something, really marriage issues, relationship issues, a diagnosis this past week, a burden that's overwhelming you, we're going to from our prayer team and our elders up here who could spend some time praying with you. And I just want to invite you to that if you need it. So do know that's available to you.